This is Fashion in Focus, the weekly New Zealand fashion podcast covering our creative world from a unique perspective. My name is India Leishman. And I'm Murray Bevan. And every week, we'll connect you with the leading designers, editors, influencers, and stylists from all over the world. If you love fashion, this is the podcast for you. There are some women in the world who radiate success, and Grace O'Neill is one of them. But there's no facade here. The 26-year-old has earned this label fair and square. Having worked as a digital fashion journalist for almost 10 years, Grace has seen, done, and written a lot. With her sharp wit and her cool girl vibe, she's earned her place as one of Australia's favourite voices in the fashion industry, which is why she landed the role of Alan Harper's Bizarre Fashion Features Director at such a young age. Whether she's travelling to Paris to sit front row at a Chanel runway show, interviewing Naomi Campbell, or at home enjoying a glass of red wine while recording her comical yet intelligent podcast, this woman means business. I've always admired young go-getters, people who are out there hustling and making a name for themselves, and particularly those in the fashion industry, which is typically a very tough nut to crack. Grace's drive is a big part of why I wanted to interview her on this podcast, to uncover the secrets that have led this it girl to achieve so much in such a short space of time. Welcome, Grace, and thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. What a lovely intro. You've just blown my ego up to epic proportions. I'll just send it to you and you can just put it on your you know, website or something. Or your, I'm going to um, make that my bio on Instagram, whole <laughs> transcript. I love Why it. Not? I'm glad you liked it. Um, I, I guess I want to start off with you in the obvious spot, and that is talking to you about how you first got into fashion, because you've been working in the editorial side of things for seven or eight years or so now. What were those early years like for you when you were breaking into the onto the scene, I should say, in, in you know Australia's magazine area? Yeah, I think I, I have an interesting perspective on it because I wasn't someone who grew up obsessing over fashion or reading fashion magazines or who even had a goal to work in magazines. I always was really into film and television, and I moved to Sydney from Perth, where I grew up, um, aiming to end up doing some sort of film and TV related job Um, and I ended up doing a journalism degree which I thought was kind of adjacent to that and um, one of my earliest internships which I know is very lucky was at Vogue Australia Um, and that kind of introduced me to the whole world of fashion I just found it so addictive and creative and exciting and dynamic and it was kind of at the time that digital was coming up so it felt like there was a space for young switched on kind of tech-savvy people to enter that world, which might have been a bit uh, inaccessible to them in the past. Um, And it it kind of grew that way because I I went from Vogue to Elle when Elle Australia launched and I was working in culture, so that was across TV, art, film, travel, things that were kind of more in my wheelhouse. Uh, And then my first full-time job was at Harper's and I kind of had to learn fashion through osmosis. So it's been this kind of weird process of like learning on the job. Um, and it became this really amazing, unexpected twist in my life. That I just felt like completely in love with the fashion industry and the magazine industry. 
And I guess, I mean, for a lot of people, like hearing that your first internship was at Vogue, that can be for a lot of people <laughs> where they sort of hope to end up one day, not the first, the first, you know, step. How did that opportunity even come, you know, available to you? Yeah, I was uh, very fortunate. I studied at the University of Sydney Media and Communications, which at the time was was a very competitive degree. I like for context, I'd got into study law in Perth, and this was considered much more sort of prestigious than that to go and do this degree. So, so there was a lot of uh, access, I think, that was given to us just based on being part of that quite a small cohort of people. So we, we got blasts and things for the Sydney Morning Herald and the ABC and Vogue and whatnot. But um, I guess because a lot of the people in that course were what you'd call quote unquote serious journalists, not as many people grabbed at Vogue as you would think. So I, I was definitely fortunate. But in saying that, I think that people uh, hugely underestimate the power of cold emailing. Um, I've been working in magazines now for nearly eight years and I think I've had could count on one hand the amount of times I've had people reach out to me asking to intern Um, and if they did I would like I can almost guarantee I would sit and meet with them and um, chat with them and if they were smart and switched on would have brought them on and it's just never happened so I think that while I definitely got a, a, a huge swing of luck by being invited to apply to intern at Vogue uh Having initiative and cold emailing is hugely important as well. That's how I got in at L. I just emailed one of the editorial team members and, and ended up working there. And that is so interesting that you say that because I often think, you know, you know, girls um, who are interested in fashion might go on the Vogue website and there might be a thing, Vogue Careers, and then you scroll down and it typically says things like, we do not take internships. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, please, you know, a- apply through our whatever channels when opportunities come up. So it's amazing to think that, you know, maybe they're deterring a few people because otherwise they'd get a massive influx, but it's still good to persevere mm. and just stick to that, you know, cold calling, which is really an age-old, um, I guess, a way of getting a job, actually, a lot of the time, isn't it? Oh, totally. And I think that you have to be very thoughtful. I think you have to write. There's a huge amount of power in writing a really eloquent, thoughtful, well-thought-out email that's respectful and isn't... Um, I don't know what the word is, like entitled, like not expecting anything, not demanding anything, just and sort of emailing the right person. If you want to work in digital, finding out who the digital editor is and writing in that capacity. If you want to do beauty, finding the beauty editor, just those little things that takes a lot of research and it takes a lot of time. But I think you'd be very hard pressed, especially in this era where we're quite understaffed to find someone that would say no to a really gun intern if they got the right email. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about this time at Vogue because I think for me and probably for a lot of people, it feels like there's a lot of mystery surrounding, you know, working at Vogue. It's a workplace that is lusted after by so many men and women. Can you tell me about what that experience was like and whether it at all resembled the Devil Wears Prada, anything like that? (laughs) Um, Look, I I have to caveat by saying I was only there for three or four months. So obviously compared to other people, I don't have a huge amount of experience there. Um, But I just think the thing that really struck me about it was the level of professionalism. Um, I think that the the glitz and glamour of offices that you see in movies is probably uh, something that happens in New York and not so much in Australia. It really just feels like going into a an office space into a workplace obviously 
in all fashion magazines as amazing fashion cupboards. Um, but <laughs> I think everyone was just a highly intelligent, highly switched on, very professional, very hardworking uh, woman. And I think when you're young, I think I was 18 or 19, um, girl trying to figure out what you want to do in the world, being surrounded by people like that is just incredibly inspiring. And, and to see people who, you know, were interested in fashion and beauty, but could also speak really thoughtfully about politics or art or culture or film or all these other things that I was interested in, I think it was really the thing that sort of pulled me over into wanting to be part of the magazine world. It's very interesting that you you talk about, you know, writing gracefully and being thoughtful because I think that is very much become a, a part of, you know, all sort of magazines these days. It's not specifically about the topic of the magazine, where it, whether it's a, a, you know, a fishing magazine or a fashion magazine. There actually needs to be a little bit more to the writing these days. Did you, um, I guess, just learn that on the job, you know, being at Vogue and then at Al? Is that something that has progressed along the way or did you sort of know that going into it from the course you did yeah it's it's really something that I feel you learn through osmosis you learn through um reading a lot I think that it's such a basic piece of advice but finding writers that you love and just reading up everything that they've written and just reading all the international editions and magazines back to back and just absorbing as much good writing as you can is hugely important. And then having a, a good editor is really important. I think when you're starting out, um, you're very eager, you're very overzealous. I think that like the first year of me writing, especially fashion content, it just often came across as like a press release and you can end up writing really cringy things like this gorgeous bag or like a stunning heel yeah. or, you know, you've got to have someone Generic who's like... sort of stuff, eh? Yeah, and like, and you'd like, like you're writing the copy for that brand's website, like you're trying to hype them up. It's like, no, you're, you're trying to give, you know, an objective opinion on something. Yeah. So having a good editor who kind of goes through that with a big red pen and just culls things, I, like I've always appreciated being really heavily edited. I think it's made me a much better writer. Yeah. And um, in terms of being thoughtful, I think it's just we have so much um, – information at any given time now we are absolutely overloaded with content and I think that you really need to think about what it is that you're offering someone that's different to something they could get elsewhere especially in a magazine because a print product you're asking people to pay when you know we get so much of our content for free now you're asking people to invest their time to sit down and read it for an hour or two hours so you've really got to think about what makes that experience valuable and why someone would want to do that and I think that if you start from that perspective you always end up writing something better. Yeah and I guess you know the Australian fashion industry has always been spoiled for choice when it comes to editors, when it's, it comes to designers and writers, you've got great businesswomen and men uh, and I guess you know for you who have been the people looking back now that you've really looked up to who have been really inspiring to you over the past you know 10, 10 or so years? Um, yeah, I think Spoiled for Choice is a, a great way to describe it. I've been so lucky to have just this vast array of, of women that I find kind of iconic. You know, the, the first uh, full-time job I had was at Harper's Bazaar under Kelly Harsh, who I just think is this formidable, incredible um, businesswoman and, and editor and, and just kind of overall legend and then Justine Cullen I worked with Elle and it's another person who has a different leadership style but just inspires such incredibly fierce loyalty among her team members she's just an amazing leader and really uncompromising and did amazing things at Elle I remember my first uh 
couple of months at L was when they ran the Nicole Trumpfio breastfeeding cover and it turned into this like global phenomenon about um, normalizing breastfeeding and taking the shame out of it and kind of making it look glamorous and sexy and beautiful and uh, I remember that that, that, that yeah. shoot I remember actually covering it because they were news and I remember it at the time being like wow this is this is amazing yeah, those are the things that make you feel really excited and inspired to be working somewhere, you know. And then now uh, with Geneva Leak at L, I just think is an exceptional, exceptional, um, thoughtful editor and leader. It's been such a pleasure to work with her. And Eugenie Kelly as well is like one of the funniest people I think I've ever met and worked with and just has been doing amazing things too with sustainability and um sort of things that are great causes and I, yeah so I, like I say spo- spoiled for choice is all of my direct bosses I've been so lucky to work with. It's interesting that you say about sustainability because it does you know really feel like fashion's not specifically just about the clothes there is so much going on in fashion and even a couple of weeks ago I was talking to one of our New Zealand uh, fantastic New Zealand designers Maggie Hewitt uh, who mm. has a lot to do with sustainability with her brand Maggie Marilyn and it's incredible to see all these young people whose focus is not solely you know it's it is about the clothes but there is a lot more going on into creating these beautiful products so I hear what you're saying there mm-hmm. um Let's talk about what you have been doing for the last chapter, I guess. You you joined at Bauer about six years ago and you've worked your way up to a very impressive position. Uh, and I know, you know, moving cities, that's all happened. But I just want to talk about your role at Al Ann Harper's Bazaar as the Fashion Features Director. Tell us about that role because it sounds like a dream position for any girl <laughs> who wants to work in, you know, in a magazine doing fashion. Yeah, I, th- I think for me it felt like as soon as I got the lay of the land with magazines, I think that job became a sort of dream job for me. So to be able to get it um, and start that role at the age that I was able to was just a huge privilege and such a huge sign of um, – I just give such huge credit to Geneva and Eugenie for um, – taking a chance on me because he is taking a chance hiring a 25-year-old to do that role. Mm. Um, But I think that the thing that was really exciting to me was that I'd spent sort of six years in digital and as exciting and interesting as digital is, uh, you, you miss the kind of I guess the word is like meatiness of print profiles. I think that you can get into a bit of a routine of just pumping out content. I was doing like six or seven stories a day for a period and working really long hours and obsessing over Instagram and data and insights and strategy. And um, And it's all short form, isn't it, I guess, compared to the features. Totally. And you can start to just feel like a bit of a robot. Just every story is like, X happened, Y happened, this happened, bit of context, insert a photo, publish, you know, and I really missed the opportunity to be able to write kind of longer form things that I I felt I could kind of flex my writing muscles a bit more. Um, It was a huge undertaking, you know, we went from having um, a fashion features director on each title to having a single fashion features director across both, so the actual content that I had to pump out on a monthly basis is huge. Um, Two sections in Bazaar, both at like sort of seven or eight pages each and then um, similar in L. And Ginevra Leake, who is the editor-in-chief of L, had that position previously. So there was obviously like very big shoes to fill. Mm. Um, And then on top of that, I was kind of just putting my hand up for everything and doing sort of cover interviews and um, still writing for digital and traveling. And it was, it was a very, very, very hectic year. Um, But I just wrote so many 
pieces that I'm just really proud of and got to interview fascinating people and, and got to, I feel, really put my mark on the magazines and and, and kind of offer maybe a, a fresh perspective that, yeah, it was just amazing. I still kind of can't believe it happened. It sounds <laughs> incredible. And I am going to ask you a little bit later about, you know, those interviews and which ones you've really loved. But I guess listening to you say, you know, it had been a dream job for you. I think often we fantasise about these roles and, you know, oh, my God, I want to do this job when I get older and, you know, be in this certain spot. For you to have had that as a goal and then to reach that, what did that feel like for you? It was honestly, um, I think this happens to women a lot, but I wanted the job so badly. And then as soon as I got it, I jumped to being like, oh, my God, can I actually do this? Have I tricked them and I'm not capable? Like, what am I going to do? Am I a terrible writer? Like, I just jumped straight into kind of like imposter syndrome, self-doubt. Um, Why do we do that? Eh? Was, I don't know. It's so I weird. know. It's ridiculous. Um, after I'd spent all this time like really selling myself and really like, you know, making a case for why I should get the job. But I really came into the job at this time of, of – massive change at Bauer where I worked, which was that um, the two previous editors of Harper's Bazaar and Elle had left uh, both within a fairly short period of time. The new editors had uh, been hired and the merged team whereby we were working across two titles had started. So it was just this crazy period where you you had uh, not only new bosses, but suddenly two new bosses. Uh, You were working across two totally different publications. So you had to get around both of those. And there was just no time because because everyone was getting used to this new world order. There just wasn't time to be able to have someone hold your hand through it and explain everything to you. You kind of just had to dive in and just do it. So even things as basic as like I'd never like worked to a layout before because I'd only worked in digital. So I could write a story, but then the art team would be like, well, where's the pictures? What do you want it to look like? And I'd be like, I don't know. So then like (laughs) I had to literally just figure out all of these things through osmosis. And um, it was, I think it was insanely stressful, but it was the best possible way to do it. I've always felt like the best way to do things is baptism by fire. I feel like um, anytime that I've had interns, uh, I'm literally just like throwing them in the deep end and then just being like, yeah. <laughs> just just figure it out because it's really stressful for the first few days. Um, but people aren't expecting you to be perfect straight away. And then that just kind of forces you to learn it. Yeah. Um, so that, that was kind of the experience that I had. So it didn't, I didn't have like any like rose tinted glasses moments about it when I started where I was like, Oh my God, this is so amazing. I'm so great. Like I was just like, yeah. ah, like <laughs> I get everything out. So Yeah. yeah. It's a role that has required, or I should say enabled you to travel to some of the most incredible places. I saw that not too long ago you were in the Sahara Desert for a Bulgari event and you also go to a lot of -of out-of-this-world fashion shows like the Chanel Cruise one you attended earlier this year in Paris. Was that a real pinch-me moment for you when you were looking up and realising you were at the Grand Palais at this show? Oh, yeah, I think a Chanel show is just the pinnacle of fashion. Uh, any fa- yeah, any fashion person's dreams. It was such a amazing and surreal experience and, and kind of another thing where it was something I wasn't ever sure would happen um, for me and then to end up doing it so early on in my career. I'd only been in that job, I think, five or six months when that happened. So, oh, my God, it was just insane. And it was um, 
it was Virginie. Yeah, I know, it's Virginie. hard to French. I know. It's Virginie Viard's first show, um, solo show after the passing of Karl Lagerfeld. So it had this real kind of fashion history sense to it. Um, and it was amazing. But I will say that it was, again, extremely hectic. I was in Paris for two nights and um, it was just back to back to back that morning. I think I'd been gone to bed at like 2 a.m., woke up at 5, had to get ready, ran to the Grand Palais, was meeting a videographer, was backstage shooting a backstage beauty video, was pulling out models and tackling makeup artists and interviewing Lucia Pica, who's the um, Chanel Global makeup artist, and then running out to the show and then running backstage again to um, do a second interview with her and then running back to the hotel and doing edits on the video. It was, you know... It's always chaos, isn't it? It was, it was chaos. It was yeah. very hectic. So it, I think on Instagram it probably gave the illusion of being this very, like, breezy. Chic <laughs> experience, yeah. Yes, and it was, but it was, yeah, so busy. It kind of just felt like a dream after it happened. I was like, did that really happen? It's funny you said that, actually, because I work for a, a news company in New Zealand and a lot of the time our reporters, when they go overseas, you know, it's like, oh, wow, you're off to Hong Kong or you're going to, you know, Rio or wherever you're going. And people, I think, have this, as you say, it's an illusion that it's all so relaxed, but actually most of the time it's no sleep, it's working very, very long, long yes. days and not having a lot of time to get ready and you're turning up to, you know, a Chanel Couture show, so you want to look amazing. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, and I mean, you know, amazing show. As you said, it was the uh, the first show since Karl Lagerfeld had passed away was was that quite um, an iconic show for you I guess you know looking back because there as you said there was a lot of history there would have been a lot of um, celebrities and, and people who really loved Karl Lagerfeld there coming to check out the, the new collection. Yeah, it was amazing. It definitely had a I think a sense of I know that nothing that Chanel does is um, like low key but I think that Virginie is a very uh, it has a very different personality type to Karl Lagerfeld, who she worked very closely with. Um, so I think that there was definitely a sense of wanting to let the clothes speak for themselves. And while there were obviously celebrity guests and everything, I think she really kind of stripped it back and, and offered something that was a little bit more understated, very feminine, um, was definitely this first kind of sense of what her leadership there is going to be like. That show aside, uh, I know you've you've been to some incredible events. What have been some of your career highlights, or you know, some of the events that you have just adored attending? Yeah, uh, there's been so many. You're you're, you're so lucky um, when you work in this industry because the the creativity of the people. Uh, at the brands that you get to work with is just immense. Uh, you mentioned the Bulgari event in the Sahara Desert. That was just insane. We were flown into Dubai and then the first night we um, got, what do you call it? Helicoptered? Like, four, no, <laughs> not quite. Like we got these like crazy four-wheel drive Oh, like a jeep um, or something. Like jeeps into the desert so that we were like sand dune hopping. Oh, my into God, that the, sounds very sex in the city too. Samantha. It was very sex in the city too. <laughs> and we got like just driven out during sunset and then we were like, where are we going? And then when we got there, they just set up this giant like banquet table with fairy lights and a live band and a fire show, like which we were at in the dead of night, basically. We were there for like five hours. It was one of the most just amazing, beautiful, magical things I've ever experienced. Um, That's amazing. I went to Royal Ascot this year uh, with Longines, which was just incredible. So I saw like the Queen and Kate Middleton and um, 
not Megan and Harry, but it's <laughs> all right. They'll, they'll be around at some point. They'll be around. But yeah, like that was just another surreal experience. And, and um, anything related to Fashion Week, I think, is just a real pinch me moment doing London Fashion Week and, um, you know, seeing the Victoria Beckham show and Simone Rochard, I think, is like just a magical show to see and Chloe Sevigny walked in that and then um, Molly Goddard did a show in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in London which is just this beautiful amazing building and um, I think it was like a real turning point show for her where the clothes were just phenomenal Um, doing New York Fashion Week as well was just even just walking to a room and, and, and seeing the I think something that happens um, when you work in the industry is that you become much more starstruck about uh, other editors that yeah. <laughs> you do about more so the celebrities. models or celebrities. Yeah. yeah. Um, so even just walking into shows where, you know, there's Corinne Reutfeld and Emmanuel Alt and Anna Wintour and Grace Coddington, like that's a, a, a totally surreal experience. Um, yeah. That's God, fantastic. I'm, I'm very yeah. jealous of everything you've done, definitely. <laughs> uh, I guess for people who aren't familiar with the you know the magazine world how do you describe what life in the magazine world is like because as i say you know you get flown around you attend fashion weeks these beautiful shows uh but it must be stressful at times obviously we have deadlines what's the the not so glamorous side of the magazine industry like yeah i think the um, I don't think it's a misconception, but if there were a misconception about it, I think it would be that there's a level of frivolousness or silliness or unseriousness about people that work in the industry where um, everyone takes their jobs and what they do extremely seriously. This is like a, a multi, multi-billion dollar industry um, fashion. It is responsible for millions of jobs and everyone who works in magazines has a huge respect for the the sort of loftiness of what the industry offers the world, you know, and, and a yeah. respect for the creativity of of what fashion is. So I think that even when you're doing incredible things like being able to go to these events, you know, if you're going to Dubai or to Paris or to New York, you're not going because uh, you personally are important. You're going because you represent a, a legacy publisher who has a relationship with a legacy fashion brand mm. and you're just kind of a, a steward of that relationship. You know what I mean? It isn't yeah. about you. So yeah. so as much as it's amazing to get to experience it, um, I think that there's a lot of pressure put on that because uh, you're basically a brand representative. Um, and I think that's what keeps people in check and, and, and is what, what stops it from being this kind of um, fun, frothy workplace is that everyone there is working and working extremely hard and taking the the value of what they do very seriously and I think that's what keeps um yeah keeps it all going um and I mean it's interesting that you you say that about you know being um a steward of the brand because you know are there any people who sort of get a bit of a bit I guess a big head about it and they think oh I'm so fabulous and you're sort of like "Mm, yeah you're just here though because of the brand or does does everyone (laughs) tend to keep it pretty humble no, I think that I think that the easiest mistake you can make when you work in magazines is mistaking um, the yourself and your value for the brand's value. And I think that that's something that you see people getting uh, caught up 
in and tied up in a lot of the time. And then when people leave magazines, they go into a real identity crisis because they're not get, getting sent, you know, beautiful bouquets of flowers to work and getting access to beauty sales and getting invited to press sample sales and all of those things, you know. Um, you build relationships and people respect your work as an individual, but it's such a, a like a huge error Um, a fatal error really in the industry to make the mistake that the things that you're getting and the access that you're being given is because of you as an individual. Um, And I think that the people that I've always tended to gravitate to in like a personal way in terms of people that I'm friends with are all people that have a a pretty good grasp of that. Um, And obviously it does happen. Obviously there's egos. There's egos in 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 every industry. industry. Um, And especially when you're at the top of your game and you're working – in a, a in sort of industry yeah with any any environment that's the top tier of whatever it does you know there's room for that but I don't think any more so than than any other under workplace sort mm. of yeah I I wonder you know you talk about you know these beautiful bouquets of flowers being sent to you you <laughs> know at work and I do think you know that aside fashion is a very romanticizing sort of industry you know the clothes create the surreal experience for everybody now that you have worked in fashion do you think it's an area you'll continue to to keep working in or do you see yourself doing other sorts of writing along the track um, I, I, I would always love to have uh, to be working in fashion. Um, I think that the thing that really made me kind of fall in love with it um, unexpectedly, I guess, in my early 20s was realising more and more and more the way that the like, fashion and society are, are just so hugely intertwined. Like a really basic example is there's this um, thing called skirt theory, which is this concept that like the trendy length of hemlines rise and fall in accordance with like the economies of the time. So like when the economy's going really well and it's really strong, it's all mini skirts and like hip hip hooray. And then when things start to kind of settle down and um, the economy (laughs) slows and everyone's having a bit less fun, then you'll drop to a midi length and everyone will be a bit more demure. And I don't know how scientific that is, but (laughs) I love that as an example of like, Fashion and culture and politics and um, history, everything is so inextricably linked and it so speaks to the times that we're in and the conversations that you can have around what's happening in fashion and the cultural impact of it, um, I think will always fascinate me. I just, I find it so interesting, you know, how the fashion industry responds to Me Too and how we look at um, sex appeal and sexiness in this era and is it appropriate to be sending tiny mini dresses down the runway or is it empowering for women to wear something like that and should they be able to, like, um, or, you know, how the- fashion responds to the sustainability crisis and the way they're responding to the fact that we need to have less stuff. So how do you respond to that as a fashion designer? I just think those things are they're answering fascinating cultural questions. And so that's why I'll always be interested in it, aside from the glamour and the beauty, you know, even if I was just in a little room typing away on yeah. my own. We will actually move on to talking to you a, a little bit more about the writing side, but the last question I just wanted to ask on the, the topic of, you know, this specific job as the Fashion Features Director, what were the best perks of the job? I mean, obviously <laughs> the travel, but did we get beautiful bags and things like that sent as well, I'm sure? Definitely the travel. I think um, any sort of press discount or sample sale access is it's killer. But yeah. um, addictive. Is, yeah, yeah, very addictive. I think my bank account got a good old thrashing while I was there, and and also uh, 
access to the beauty cupboard. I'm a bit of a skincare obsessive, so oh yeah, me too. Um, access to all of the bloody Lemurs and Augustinus Beta and all of that stuff was was pretty cool as well. Yeah, it'd be pretty hard to let go of that, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and as we've been talking, you know, first and foremost, you are a writer. Do you have a process when it comes to writing, whether it's features or, you know, short form stuff? The reason I ask this is because I imagine there would actually be a lot of nerves interviewing someone like Stella McCartney, or perhaps not, um, and other leading fashion minds of the world. Do you have sort of a, a process or is there certain prep you always do or is it more natural and organic? Um, I think with with interviews, I'm always nervous before an interview. I was nervous before this interview, even oh, though I was really? on the other side. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that that's to- it's totally natural. It's kind of a strange like social interaction to be having in the first place. So I think it's fine to feel nervous. Yeah, but um, you got to be I so comfortable with thing- someone, and then sort of like you know professional as well. It's a, I get it. It's a weird line sometimes, isn't it? Exactly, and it's kind of rapport building without being too fangirly or too eager or keen so that's always an interesting line to straddle but I think research is the biggest thing if I'm going to interview someone I literally read like every single interview they've ever given every single tidbit of information I can find and usually most of it won't even come up in the interview but I think just having that level of preparation and kind of having a strong idea of what someone's going to say or what they're going to talk about beforehand it just means you can get much more interesting content and it makes that rapport building a lot easier. Um, And then in terms of actually writing a piece, you know, um, I think the biggest thing for me, I think it's really important how you start a story and something that has become more and more important to me as time's gone on is, is just really trying to find an interesting way to kick something off a kind of unusual way or just looking really laterally at all all the different possibilities of how you can kick off a story, because that's really what kind of hooks someone in or doesn't. So, you know, um, I recently wrote a story about a fashion show in Berlin and um, I just started Googling celebrity quotes about Berlin and then there was this great thing that David Bowie had written about living in Berlin during his most creative years and then the opening paragraph became this kind of thing about why David Bowie fell in love with Berlin and, yeah. and it, it sounds like a little thing but it just it just adds like a certain level of something to it. It's to, a depth to it, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's uh, instead of saying like, you know, this happened at this location in Berlin on this date. You talk about, you know, celebrities have always been drawn to the creative hub of Berlin, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's, I guess, I creating that, that narrative, isn't it? As you say, it's yeah, like the, totally. the um, romantic side of things, again, sort of coming through. Yeah, and just being, I think, being as creative as you can with it is is uh, just a great thing. I think that all of the fashion writers that I love have a very um, individual style of writing um that you just get really drawn to and just like really little tidbits of personality you know you've got to obviously adhere to the the uh, voice of the brand that you're writing for but just literally the smallest little things can really get the reader engaged i think Grace, you've interviewed a number of incredibly successful women. You've had Naomi Campbell, Gigi Hadid, Ashley Graham. They're just some of the models. You've had Tommy Hilfiger, Michael Kors, a whole number of uh, designers as well. Who have you enjoyed the most writing about or, you know, having an interview with? Yeah, I loved, I think, Ashley Graham. um, That was my first cover interview, so I have a bit of a soft spot for that. But just such a remarkable, engaging, um, incredible person who's doing such amazing things in fashion. I think nowadays we don't appreciate um, maybe as much 
how difficult it, it is for someone who's not sample size to have become a fashion phenomenon, you know. She's mm. just this, yeah, I'm just very, very inspired and um, into what she does. Carolyn Murphy is another cover interview I did for Harper's and um, she's just probably one of the loveliest, kindest um most kind of interesting thoughtful people I've ever spoken to just uh so kind of optimistic and thoughtful but could speak about things like you know it came after a lot of scandals around fashion photographers and she could speak really candidly about her own experiences with sexual harassment on set and uh, you know having an 18 year old daughter and the things she's teaching her daughter to make sure her daughter doesn't go through similar things and and talking about you know abuses that happen within the fashion industry that aren't limited to sexual harassment that can be emotional abuse or manipulation or, or things by both male and female uh, people in the industry and I, I think having someone who's in that position of power, who's an original supermodel, who still at forty five commands magazine covers, yeah, um, and be so candid, to be able to, yeah, to be to be able to talk that candidly is really cool. And then Michael Kors, I've interviewed a few times, and he's just awesome, just like radiates positivity. That's um, fantastic. Yeah, I'm trying to think of it. I mean, Naomi Campbell was like insane was she very um, intimidating because i've heard mixed yes. reviews about her <laughs> and like i would be severely nervous interviewing naomi campbell i think yes yeah, so i interviewed naomi campbell in paris and um she wasn't feeling very well that day so it was just the double whammy of me oh, being god. like oh god just what and, you um, need. exactly and we there was a, a dinner that night and i was meant to interview her before the dinner and uh, she wasn't ready because she wasn't feeling well, so she's taking a while to get ready. So it was like entrees came out and they were like, Naomi Campbell's ready to see you. So I like ran up the stairs and they're like, sorry, she's not ready. So I went back down and the food had been cleared. Oh. And then mates came out and they were like, Naomi's ready to see you. So I like ran back up the stairs and then she still wasn't ready. So I didn't eat like the whole night. Oh, and then, no. um, <laughs> And then um, as I finally went to go and interview her, as she walked down the stairs to start our interview, she literally bumped into Ali McGraw, who's like, oh my lord, the most iconic like seventies married to Steve McQueen, yeah, starstruck person. Anyway, so then I've got this photo on my phone of me like trailing the two of them down a corridor, just like waiting for them to finish their conversation. It was the most surreal moment. And then we got to where we were all eating dinner. Naomi was on the VIP table, obviously, and she just turned to me. She's in this like floor skimming black cape she looked amazing um and she was like is it okay if I smoke during the interview and I was like yeah and she was like you can talk to me till I finish my cigarette so she like lit up the cigarette and was like go and then I had to ask her um, oh my god really that amount of yes. time <laughs> yes so it, was, it was a pretty amazing um I, I don't know the whole I wasn't even angry the whole time I was just like this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened well she's a goddess uh, of fashion so you would be pretty exhilarated I'm sure like you know you're just gonna just, do what she as says soon as she started talking she was just the most like charismatic funny cool open book person and I was like totally sucked in and in those situations do you actually get to take a recording device along or are you just doing you know like short form sort of notes no, I've got to take a dictaphone. I would never remember. I've got a shocking memory. Yeah, I was going to say that's very impressive. I'm glad we don't have to do that sort of journalism nowadays. God, I know, help oh us. God. Shorthand. <laughs> yeah. The media industry, and more particularly the magazine sector, has made a real transition towards digital over the, the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, and I guess that's because of the constant looming concern that print will eventually die. I wanted to ask what your opinion of that is because you obviously have been working 
you know, with magazines for a long time, um, you know, in my opinion, that seems 10 years is quite a while. What do you think will happen? Will they die or, you know, will something else replace them? I think that, um, I really do think this, I'm not like sort of, I don't know, maybe I've drank the Kool-Aid, but I, I, I think that there will always be some form of print media. I think that there's been, I remember talking to a girlfriend of mine who works in publishing and she was saying that book publishing went through a similar thing to this, like, but like 20 years ago in the early 2000s where everyone was like, books are going to die. No one's ever going to buy books. You can get everything online. Why would anyone buy any? And they had this crisis period where there was redundancies and publishing houses closed and everyone freaked out. And then the pendulum just swung back the other way and now book sales are like the highest they've been in. I don't know, like 30 years or something. I'm making up these numbers, but that's the kind <laughs> we'll of, <go> that's fine. <laughs> that's the kind of vibe. So I do think we're in a bit of a moral panic about the death of print. I, I really don't believe that print's ever going to fully die. I think that the nature of print is going to change where the pressure to make it into a memorable product worthy of purchasing is higher. So I think that any publication that has tried to go down the road of replicating online content in print form has died. Mm-hmm. You look at the publications that have closed at Bauer where I worked and it's, you know, Clio, Dolly, um, Even Cosmo, didn't it? Cosmo, yeah, they're all you – know, I worked for Cosmo briefly and, you know, they're all magazines uh, that really – always belonged online that they just didn't have online until online happened. You know what I mean? Like the nature of Cosmo and Cleo was always about bite-sized, easily digestible, fun, like candy cane, sugary content um, that you just quickly indulge in and then move on, you know? So like that is perfect for online and that's why Cosmo online is fucking killing it because their content works for that. I think in terms of like fashion, you just cannot replicate a beautiful fashion editorial on digital it just doesn't translate you know and I think that there will always be a market of people who want to see an incredibly shot 35 page story with an incredible model and beautiful clothes and a a top photographer who will pay money to get it printed in a beautiful book yeah it's all about that experience isn't it yeah, you know, totally. opening the book and having it in front of you and owning that beautiful piece. A lot of people, you know, spend their hard-earned money on a beautiful, you know, issue of Vogue or a Harper's Bazaar or an L to, you know, have in their possession. It's almost like a beautiful asset. Exactly. And I remember talking to my old um, uni lecturer who's a legend. Um, she was saying that there's this psychological phenomenon um that she's been researching and it's this idea of leaning forward versus leaning back and the idea being that when you read something online you're leaning forward you're hunched over it's the same like physical experience as when you um are working sending emails uh, frantically doing something on your laptop whereas when you read a magazine you lean lean back so it's the same feelings associated with lying by the beach watching a movie in the cinema you know like the whole yeah. physiological experience of reading it is different mm. um so yeah I, I don't think print will die it will change like publications that can't respond to that properly and don't have the business models in place to to switch uh the way they do things to meet that and who keep trying to basically turn themselves into like a printed website won't survive but the magazines that are doing well i think will yeah i think circulation will drop and then very slowly it'll creep back up again yeah you recently moved to london after being in sydney for quite some some time i guess i just wanted to ask you why you you wanted to do that 
not yeah, making it a bad thing because it is a great thing. London is a great city, <laughs> particularly for fashion. I know, I know. So from a very practical perspective, my, my partner got into a PhD program over here. Um, so that kind of seemed like too good an opportunity to pass up. It's also something that I've wanted to do for quite a while. I was born in London. My dad lives here. I have a huge amount of family over here. I have a British passport. So it always felt like something I wanted to do. So I think uh, his getting into this course was just kind of kick up the backside that we yeah. needed. Um, but it is hard, you know, when you're in a job that is a job that you've dreamed of being in for a really long time, um, to give that up after a year is a huge decision. And it was something that I kind of obviously didn't make lightly and thought a lot about. It's really scary, like a... Uh, um, moving moving my, cities, isn't it? Yeah, moving cities and just being very secure and very comfortable in where your career is and then moving somewhere where um, no one's aware of you, no one knows of your work, you don't have rapport with people, you've got to build all of those, you know, PR and um, brand relationships from scratch. It's, you know, it's a really scary undertaking and I think sometimes when people move overseas they uh, try to kind of um, – romanticize how amazing it is because they are maybe a bit scared themselves and don't want to admit that they're frightened but I'm like it, it, it was frightening it's 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 scary to put yourself out there like that um but you know we'll I'm see sure how it all your, goes. your work will speak for itself I think Naomi Campbell and Ashley Graham transcend countries so I'm sure you'll do be doing great over there um what is you know, what is the plan, I guess, for you for the next five or ten years? Are you someone who plans? Do you have goals in place or do you just sort of see where the wind takes you? Yeah, I do. I do it. I don't. I think that um, going freelance was something that I I thought about doing and wanted to do for quite a while. I just love the idea of um, being able to contribute to a lot of different publications that I love and kind of um, form more of a niche and more of a name for myself as a writer who people become familiar with my writing and you know that would be the dream um I also have a podcast uh oh, yes I'm gonna ask you about <laughs> yes. that soon <laughs> I knew that was coming up but um yeah so so we uh, I have a podcast with my best friend Izzy and and we really wanted to have a bit more time to dedicate to that so we've been able to do that as well which is fantastic um and I'm staying on it Elle is a contributing editor, which is an absolutely amazing thing for me because it's a publication that I've loved since it opened. So to be able to still be contributing there is fantastic. So the chips are kind of falling into place. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, in terms of five or ten years, I, I have no idea. Just see what, what writing scenes. Fantastic. I wanted to take a moment, Grace, to actually ask you about mental health. And mm. it's a topic that I've talked about with – everybody I've interviewed on this podcast so far because I think it's important, you know, that people listening to these uh, episodes, you know, realise that just because you're, you know, New Zealand's top designer or one of Australia's, you know, most adored fashion journalists, everybody goes through ups and downs and it is very normal. And particularly in the fashion industry, there's a lot of pressure to look and act a certain way. Mm. When you combine that with the stress and the desire to deliver exceptional work always on time. So I wanted to ask you how you have coped with that pressure as a young woman coming through the ranks and if there have ever been times when you perhaps haven't coped? Yeah, that's such a great question. I'm really glad that you asked it. I actually, um, I, I realised after I was diagnosed with, I was diagnosed with generalised anxiety disorder, which is very, very normal, um, about 
three or four years ago. And uh, it basically happened at a time where I went to a psychologist and I was just like, I'm not coping. I feel overwhelmed all the time. I feel constantly stressed. I can't unwind. I I panic about everything. I was having panic attacks semi-regularly. I was just not in a very good mental Space. place. Yeah. And I really, I think something that now that I've talked to other girlfriends about it, something that you do, and it's funny because it's a side effect of anxiety, is that you like over-dramatize what's wrong with you. So I was like, I don't want to see a psychologist because what if I have like, I don't know, some insanely hectic thing and she's going to medicate me and I have to be taken to a, I don't know, rehab or something. Um, (laughs) A ward. Yeah, yeah, a ward somewhere. Yeah, exactly. I, I like really panicked about it. And I had this fantastic psychologist who who kind of made me realize that so much of my life, so many problems that I'd had were all related back to anxiety. And she just explained what anxiety was and um, the effect it has on the brain Mm. and gave me some just just amazing coping mechanisms really. And I had 10 sessions with her in Australia. We've got this mental health plan where you can get 10 complimentary sessions with a mental health professional, which is awesome. I know so many people who've used it. Um, And she really changed the entire course of my life because she's just taught me how to get a handle on my thinking. Um, And I think the biggest thing, what happens with anxiety in how she explained it to me is that your brain kind of prioritizes negative thoughts. Um, And not only does it prioritize them, but it kind of doesn't cleanly differentiate between uh, what's an opinion and what's a fact. So a good example is like you walk into the office and you say hi to someone and they're like, hey, or like don't answer or say it in a kind of like blunt way. Like if you're an anxious person, straight away you're, you're going to be like, "What have I done to upset them?" And I'm angry like at me. that. Oh, yeah, God. <laughs> and then not only do you think that, but your brain's like, "They hate you." So instead of like thinking, "Well, maybe they're they're just having a bad day, or maybe they're just really busy, or maybe well, like thinking about something else," they're thinking about <laughs> something else. Not only does your brain think they're saying that because they're mad at you, but it's like they're mad at you. And you think that's a fact. So then all the ways you interact with that person for the rest of the day will be like informed by something that you didn't even know to be true in the first place. Yeah. You know what I mean? Very and interesting. That can kind of just have this huge flow on effect through your whole life. And I think in fashion, especially where it's very keeping up appearances, looking a certain way, you know, wearing the right things, um, going to social events constantly with people you don't know or with people maybe you don't particularly like but you have to see them like four nights a week, (laughs) Um, that's a really bad place to have like exacerbated anxiety. Mm. Um, And I think having someone kind of – she made me really good at recognising those negative thought patterns early and kind of nipping them in the bud because if I didn't do that, it would be like, oh, someone was – and, you know, a bit off with me in the morning. And then the next thing would I would get an email, say, with some edit, an edited story from my editor and it would be a bit harsh. And then something else would happen where, like, the coffee guy would, like, be, I don't know, not super polite in the line. And then all of a sudden in your head you're like, everyone hates me. Why does everyone hate me? What's wrong with me? Yeah. Is there something I'm writing today off. It's a shit day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you, you, you walk around then feeling like there's this, like, inherent thing that's wrong with you or that people don't like about you and it's just a really terrible way to live your life um and so yeah I think that that's and it's a management thing like something my psychologist told me really early on was like you'll never get rid of anxiety you'll just learn to manage it so it flares up obviously moving country it flared up hugely um 
I've noticed that if I'm feeling really anxious, I'll either like obsessively online shop oh. or drink too much wine, both of which are not like good behaviors. So if I'm like doing good, but bad, but either, good. I'm like slow down. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It's really so, interesting. It's so interesting. He continues. Sorry, I'm just saying. I no, just no, find no, it really I'm interesting. So I'm glad that I'm glad that you asked because so many people I know who work in the industry who uh, we all have very shiny veneers of ourselves on Instagram. One thing I'll say very quickly about Instagram is that uh, when you work in magazines, you have where you work in your bio, and when you have that, you are an extension of the brand that you work for. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the Instagram account is, in a way not yours anymore so it has to be as as polished and glossy as the publications that you're associating with and Mm. so it's very far removed from what's actually going on in that person's life even more so I think than the average kind of Instagram yeah account so there are so many women that I work with and know personally who have amazingly glossy beautiful social media accounts and who have seen psychologists who have been diagnosed with mental illness, who are on medication or who are dealing with, um, you know, treatment plans and whatnot. It's, it's much more common, I think, than people think. I know we talked a little bit before about your podcast, After Work Drinks, mm-hmm. and which has, you know, just been such a, a success. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I know a lot, but I know our listeners will want to hear about <laughs> that. They'll probably start listening straight after this, I'm sure. I hope they do. Um, it was, I cannot explain succinctly enough how much of a, on like a whim turned into a thing. A side hustle. The whole thing was like, we literally sat down and we're eating pizza. This is me and my girlfriend, Isabel. At the time, she was at Marie Claire and in InStyle as an editor. I was at Harper's Bazaar and Elle. And we were uh, talking about, I don't know, like, I don't know if you do this with your friends, but, like, when you talk and you're like, we're so funny. We could have a TV show. Like, you're just really egotistical. Um, that was what we were like. We were like, we're funny. Like, we talk about smart stuff. Like, mm-hmm. we could have podcast yeah. and then we literally within five days had recorded the first episode like well, oh let's Lord. just do it so we like found a studio went in it was kind of at this moment where like podcasts were starting to blow up so we could kind of see the writing on the wall that if we didn't do it quickly like you know how there was a time with blogging where you, yeah. you had to get in at a certain time and afterwards it was like impossible to infiltrate the market yeah we kind of felt like that was about to happen with podcasts so like we just need to get in even if the first episodes are terrible even if we still don't really know what we're doing we just need to like get something out there and start yeah and the first episodes were very like messy and like didn't have too much direction but the biggest thing that we always relied on was like us and our rapport and our ability to make each other laugh and the fact that it was really part of our jobs to be reading up on all of the like news and pop culture and celebrity focused content of the week so we kind of knew it and we're talking about it anyway so it felt like something we could do without researching too hard yeah that's- yeah this is where after work drinks was born so the idea is that it's like us catching up for a wine after work but yeah. in podcast format oh well it's fantastic i've seriously enjoyed listening to it and i know a lot of people have so everyone should go and check it out um look we're about to wrap up but i just really wanted to quickly fire a couple of quick round questions for you quick fire questions um all right so podcast or magazine oh you can't make me choose (laughs) you have to pick one magazine okay favorite (laughs) australian designer oh god again very hard probably christopher esber all right. Hot or cold holiday destination? Hot, definitely. All right. If you weren't born in the decade you were born in, which decade would you pick? 
<laughs> um, God, maybe the 70s. 70s is yeah. pretty cool. Very cool. Uh, favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, God, I don't really, I don't have much of a sweet tooth. Maybe just vanilla. I know that's the most terrible thing to say. You're not actually the uh, the, the first person to say that. I've had a couple really? of other people. Yeah, I know, surprisingly. <laughs> they just love it. It's good. Um, if you weren't a writer, what would you be doing? Mm, ideally, I would be a film director. Oh, interesting. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> and is there a city you love the most in the world? I think New York's pretty hard to beat. Yeah. And I guess, uh, just lastly, everyone says that fashion sometimes takes itself too seriously. Do you agree or disagree? Uh, Strongly agree. There we go. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) All right. Well, it's time for us to wrap up. So I want to say a massive thank you to you, Grace, for joining me today. I have really just loved hearing how authentic you are. And, I mean, you've done so much for someone so young. And I don't doubt that we're going to, you know, watch you and continue to see you do great things. So I hope this next chapter in London is amazing and, you know, massively appreciate you, you being here and sharing with us today. Oh, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And next week, guys, Murray has got another brilliant guest joining him, so make sure you stay tuned in for that. That's all from us for now. Thank you, guys, and we'll speak again soon. That was the latest from Fashion and Focus. Thanks for tuning in and being a part of our conversation. If you want more, make sure you subscribe to get a fresh episode in your inbox every week. Check out more of our episodes on your favourite podcast feed and get in touch with us at Fashion and Focus at showroom22.com.